You read the Bible, Greg. Yes. Well, there's this passage I got memorized. Sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that I would gladly stick up my ass for five long years to one day be able to give to you. I'm Becky, the podcast host, most likely to wonder why it's necessary to yak about bullshit in order to be comfortable. That's when you know you found somebody special, when you can just shut the fuck up for a minute and comfortably enjoy silence. I'm Seth, the host most likely to order a $5 shake. And I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to have Madonna's big dick coming out of his left ear, and something too racist to repeat coming out of his right. <laughs> You're an episode behind, Chris. <laughs> it's Tarantino. It's all Tarantino. It's, it's all the same movie. In our last episode, we talked about Tarantino's beginnings and his ultra-violent film that he no longer takes credit for, Natural Born Killers. In today's episode, we're talking about Tarantino's other poppy postmodern violence-filled flick, Pulp Fiction. I would love to play some surf rock in honor of Pulp Fiction's soundtrack, but in lieu of that, here is our theme song. Let's get into character. Jumping back in the DeLorean a Saturday morning Cause we told me cynical or radical But was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Do we think it certainly sucked? Now we're jaded and all grown up And there was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a parasite or will it be fun? A decades later will it still hold up? And this is when we were young When we were young all right, we're back. Before we get started, Chris, we have a new review. We do. Guess how many stars? Is it five? It's five. Hooray! Thank Very goodness. Good. That's the minimum acceptable number of stars for reviews of this podcast. It is five stars. Would rate it six if I could. Mm. <gasps> Amazing! This review comes from Jay Australia, who I assume is from Australia. <laughs> and they say, Such a fun podcast. Love the chemistry between the hosts and all of the little anecdotes. Keep up the great work. P.S. Would love an episode on 90s WB shows. Dawson's Creek, etc. Well, Chris would like that very much, <laughs> but me and Seth would not. <laughs> but since our fans have requested it, we'll do it for you anyway. We could maybe be pulled into some WB Network thing. I'll watch that was one episode of Dawson's Creek. Yeah. I feel like there's not much to traverse. We don't have to paddle far to see the entire creek. Jay Australia, I think that's a very good suggestion. I just, uh, I regret to inform you, I don't want to watch that. <laughs> Yeah, we do want to thank you, Jay Australia, for your appropriate esteem of our podcast. <laughs> Might stop listening if we don't do Dawson's Creek. Just saying. 
Thank you for that review, Chris. And thank you, Jay Australia. I got a question for you guys before we get into Pulp Fiction. When did you start watching R-rated movies? This week, in preparation for this podcast. <laughs> you are an R-rated movie. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've like alluded to this on the podcast before, because we've specifically talked about some of the first R-rated movies I saw, because unlike certain hosts of this podcast, I was not allowed to watch whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, as Quentin Tarantino apparently was, we learned in our <laughs> last episode. I was about 15, I think. And I know this because I specifically remember which movies came out that I wasn't allowed to see, and then which movies came out that I was allowed to see. So I know there were a few that I happened upon. I was over at a friend's house once, and their dad was watching Terminator 2. Shortly after that came out on video. So I would like see snippets of that. And that movie, like particularly what I saw, wasn't anything extreme. But I was still like in awe of the fact that like, oh, this was for adults. Kind of like we talked about Natural Born Killers was, but like every R-rated movie was that for me at a certain point, which it was just like taboo, something I was not allowed to see. And I think because I had not actually seen it is like in my mind, it was always going to be so much more extreme than the movies really were, especially in the 90s. You know, a lot of R-rated movies were not super violent. A lot were just like action movies and they might mostly be rated R for, you know, saying fuck or something instead of being really extreme but i just like had this vision of them as something that would like completely blow my mind and like be this life-altering event so i just remember like early r-rated movies that i saw were like speed after theaters but being able to rent it on video was like about the time that i was allowed to start seeing those movies and saw the movie ransom with mel gibson i know that that was like an early r-rated movie that i saw in the theater with my dad kurt russell and breakdown was i think the next year came out and that was like right around my birthday so I think that was like the birthday movie I saw and so I remember like both of those movies just still not quite knowing what I was in for like feeling like okay this is you know an action movie like it's probably not going to be anything that's like so extreme but Ransom is like a little bit bloody especially in the end you know I was a little bit like oh that's you know more blood than I'm used to seeing and then other ones like Breakdown could have been PG-13 if not for like maybe some very minor alterations ultimately like like, I eased my way in and did not seek out things that were, like, horror art movies until, you know, mostly later. Like, I, I did, you know, like, the Scream movies, and that was kind of my gateway. But other than that, like, I was pretty cautious about, like, staying away. And I didn't really see anything, like, super sexually explicit until approaching college, probably. Like, you know, the year or so before college. I was forbidden from seeing R-rated movies, you know, from a very young age. Uh, but also, my dad would always help me sneak watch them. Because um, <laughs> we had cable at home. And like I've mentioned a lot of times before, you know, like we would watch HBO and like Showtime really pretty often. I would sometimes catch movies on like the the TBS station, obviously cut down for broadcast TV. But for the most part, like the R-rated movies I saw earliest on were things like Terminator 2. I think Terminator 2 might have been the very first like R-rated movie I saw. And it definitely would have been in the context of maybe like Thanksgiving, like after we'd eaten Thanksgiving dinner, like my cousin, my dad, my uncle, like basically all of the men who were there for Thanksgiving would all be you know, seated around the TV and I would be allowed to go. So it was kind of a, 
it felt like a kind of rite of passage thing. That beats football. Most certainly beats any form of organized team sports. Thank God I was not forced to suffer through that crap. Um, I think I told the story of, of watching Showgirls, but that was another one of those, like, type mm-hmm. of movies where, like, my dad, like, snuck me to be able to to watch it. I know I said it at the time. That is a weird movie to, like, be, like, <laughs> yeah. the, like, oh, you can't watch most of them, but this one's okay. Well, because my dad was never one who really cared about enforcing that particular rule. And even from a young age... I was like, well, like, what's what? What do you see as the harm here of me seeing this too early? And then very quickly, my thought process was like, well, if seeing these movies makes people bad people or makes people want to do bad things, then everyone I know and love must be a really terrible person. So, like, I very quickly got over the the my own fears or worries that seeing these movies would like fuck me up somehow. And honestly, I really don't think they did. I mean. That said, I didn't seek out movies like, like Sallow or you know, um, any movies that were like super controversial, awful, horrifying, or whatever. They weren't necessarily the movies that I wanted to watch anyway. I don't know if there is some ideal age at which you're in the best frame of mind to see really R-rated heavy movies. Um, but in particular, I'll say that. Pulp Fiction was a movie that, like, relatives of mine were obsessed with. But it was a movie that never really piqued my interest when I was the age when it first came out. I know I have a (laughs) reputation for, like, coming out of the womb and then, like, putting on, I don't know, (laughs) Clockwork Orange. (laughs) Um, That was... Played at your, <laughs> played at your. I was gonna say baptism, yeah, but that's, that's not, not a thing you my did. My bris, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Becky, uncut. Clockwork bris. Like to me, there wasn't. You can't watch this. So to me, like ratings kind of didn't exist, and it's not like I sought out R-rated movies when I was young. I think that they were just kind of there, and no one stopped me. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Like, and a lot of that was pay-per-view, my stolen pay-per-view, um, where that's where I first saw like Showgirls, or like literally like just pick a like pick a fucking movie like Basic Instinct or whatever was Rashomon. on. Sure, <laughs> not exactly what we're talking about. And those movies were just like there on TV, and I had access to them, but it wasn't like I was like, "Ooh, gotta close the door." It's an R-rated movie because no one was watching me. <laughs> I feel like the first one I may have actually like seen, start to finish, was probably like Child's Play or Child's Play Two because my mom loved those movies. But I do, I have memories of like just being at the kitchen table eating dinner, and we would have our TV on, and we just be like watching Child's Play, and and. And so I don't know how much that was like me actually sitting down on a couch with the lights off watching these movies. It was mostly like, the lights are on, we're eating, like, there wasn't anything to be scared of. The first movie I can actually remember sitting down and watching, and then watching repeatedly, was Rocky Horror Picture Show. I was in fourth grade, and I watched it because it was a musical, but it is (laughs) R-rated, and it is very sexually explicit. And that was the one movie my mom didn't like that I was watching, but she didn't stop me. (laughs) There's a song called Touch a Touch a Touch Me, where she gets felt up. like there's no nudity but she's felt up and my mom would tell me to fast forward that scene and sometimes i would and sometimes i wouldn't <laughs> but that was the first one and i what how old are you when you're in fourth grade 10 11 i was about that age and then came pulp fiction 
(laughs) roughly around that time. But I will get to that in a moment. (laughs) So Susan Sarandon was instrumental in your sexual awakening? Yeah, uh uh-huh. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. And before we actually move on, I... Do you think your parents were right in doing that? Because I have a three and a half year old. And honestly, like I just told you guys that she was scared of turning red, the new Pixar movie. (laughs) And I had to shut I had to shut it off. I'm not going to make her watch anything because she doesn't want to watch. But I can't imagine when she's like old enough to be like, hey, what's this movie that I'm going to like Terminator 2 or I don't know, like, I don't know, like the Babadook. I'd probably tell her, well, honey, this is very scary. And I feel like you're not ready for it. Or maybe she will be ready for it, and I will happily watch it with her. There's been a documentary called This Movie's Not Yet Rated. came out a couple years ago, and if anyone hasn't seen it, it's a great way to disabuse yourself of any notion that the MPAA is worth a shit. Like, the, the entire rating system mostly developed around, you know, the kinds of moral panics that we were talking about with natural-born killers, and mostly grew out of a kind of the studios being reactionary about especially sexual content in movies. You know, Mm -hmm. you can have literal fucking beheadings in movies and have it be PG-13 now. Um, But, you know, you show a titty, much less, you know, a woman's bush, and it's like R or NC-17 immediately, like, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Mm -hmm. Well, then it's prostitution. That is fair. So at this point, I think we should all kind of be past the point of putting any stock in the specific rating system. I think, Becky, exactly as you're saying, like, it's all of this is so individual and our individual tastes are so subjective that really it just depends on the person. And I, and I at least give my parents credit because, like, even when my mom, like, learned that I had watched something that I, you know, wasn't supposed to watch that was R-rated and super violent or whatever she would take care to like ask me like okay well like did this movie disturb you like was there any of the subject matter or anything that you wanted to talk about that's good yeah so like i never felt like watching those movies i was cast into some deep end of the pool that i couldn't swim my way out of i've thought about that before not being a parent myself but like having friends with kids ultimately it's up to parents to either try to guide their kids to the things that they think are appropriate and just communicate with kids to see where they are and to see how these things do affect them. Really, ultimately, you're not going to know exactly how any piece of media or art is going to hit someone unless they see it. Yeah, I I think it's contextual as well. Like, as a, like, younger child, I was very easily frightened of things. Oh, me too. The Michael Jackson thriller video, like... (laughs) sent me spiraling into (laughs) fear, you know, at some early age. I think at that age, if I had seen Child's Play, it probably would have disturbed me a lot. So I think in a way it was right. But like, as we've discussed on here, like I wasn't allowed to see Jurassic Park when it came out or Batman Returns. And I think Becky's shaking her head. I want that noted for the <laughs> for the audience listening at home who may We're or may not notes. include my mom. <laughs> there was a period in there where I think it was overprotection in a way that was like, I don't know if it was like damaging to my overall I will I'll say it was, but realistically, <laughs> I don't know. But like it was such a cultural thing for kids at that point that it was like slightly scarring to not have seen Jurassic <laughs> Park entering the fifth grade. But for, you know, more extreme stuff than that, like R-rated stuff, I probably did start watching it at at about the time that I was ready to, starting with kind of just, like, action movies that really weren't super violent, and then eventually, like, you know, by the 
the time I graduated high school, I was watching like Requiem for a Dream or Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Not that they're like super explicit, but Boogie Nights kind of, you know, I guess. And they're, and they're very adult. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you just kind of have to know your kids. And I think there's a lot more resources right now for parents. Like, I, there's a whole website, like, Common Sense, for parents to know exactly what content is in every movie and sort of what, is this a worthy discussion to have with your kid? Or is this maybe just, like, kind of exploitative? And I do think that the ratings, like, the importance of ratings is probably diminished a lot with streaming because, like, when we were growing up, it was a big deal when th- some things were NC-17, like, sh- movies like showgirls coming out or natural born killers like we would hear about the battles for those ratings or the fact that they were nc-17 well yeah like and a- it, even the introduction of nc-17 as a rating was a huge mm-hmm. thing in the media like i remember seeing news stories about that yeah and now you know like going to the theater is sadly not a primary way that a lot of especially like young people are even watching things so now like there's like a kid setting on on netflix and a lot of other streaming services but that's just basically like g to nothing Mm -hmm. and there maybe are some parental controls but i don't think they're used all that much so it's basically just like anything goes and there's a lot of extreme stuff you know even in just like netflix movies and whatever so i mean in general i think that like with the internet like you can see so much and you can watch like out of context scenes on youtube if you want to of like kill scenes from whatever Mm -hmm. movie you want maybe it's not great but i mean i feel like it's hard to like shelter kids from really any kind of content these days because i mean even on twitter you can see you know things so yeah I remember when I was a senior in high school, I had a movie night with lots of people over, including some like sophomores. We were going to watch Ferris Bueller. But this girl who hadn't been to my house before, her mom came in to meet my mom. Okay, sure. Whatever. Your kid hasn't been to my house. My mom's never done that. (laughs) (laughs) um, But she's like, I just want to make sure that um, Kat's not allowed to to watch R-rated movies. And I wanted to know, I wanted to make sure it wasn't an R-rated movie. And I was like, it's Ferris Bueller. Like, don't worry about it. But I was like, really? <laughs> like, it was so distant from my life <laughs> to yeah. have a, a mom come in to make sure that the movie I'm watching at, like, uh, my friend's house isn't R-rated. Um, I was just, like, blown away even back then. I was like, huh? I had friends who were Mormons, so it was, like, a religious thing that they couldn't watch rated R movies. Like, it was, like, not even just, like, their parents saying no, but it was, like, it would get them in trouble with their church. So it was, like, it was a big deal. My mom grew up Catholic, and they used to get, like, every month the Catholic Church would send out a newsletter, and among other things, you know, like, what the Pope said this month, or, like, (laughs) hot new (laughs) nun fashion. take on showgirls. Yeah. They would have movie reviews, and they would say, like, what movies would offend God if you took your kids to watch them. And it's like, I'm thankful, Chris, like you were saying, like, I I feel like there were other kinds of overprotectiveness that my parents did, but, like, restricting me from watching movies was blessedly not at all one of them. All right, well, let's get to Tarantino post-Natural Born Killers. Quentin Tarantino got some work as an uncredited screenwriter on Tony Scott's Crimson Tide and Michael Bay's The Rock. Interesting. Um, After Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino was offered gigs like Speed and Men in Black, but instead he decided to move to Amsterdam and work on a script for Pulp Fiction. Big mistake, buddy. (laughs) Big mistake. Huge. (laughs) Could have done Men in Black. Would have been a 
more interesting film. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino and his collaborator Roger Avery decided to write a short, thinking that it would be easier to get that made than a feature. But they realized that nobody produces shorts, so they turned the film into a trilogy with one section by Tarantino, one by Avery, and one was supposed to be done by a director they never found. Eventually, both Tarantino and Avery expanded each of their sections into a feature-length script. Tarantino's script was produced as Reservoir Dogs. Avery's was titled Pandemonium Reigns, and it formed the basis for the Goldwatch storyline in Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction was released October 14th, 1994. It was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, story by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. It stars John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Bruce Willis, Ving Rhames, and Harvey Keitel. The budget was $8 million. The box office was $214 million. It was nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for John Travolta, Best Supporting Actress for Uma, Best Supporting Actor for Samuel L. Jackson, Best Editing, and it won Best Original Screenplay. It, it also won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. It won only Best Original Screenplay? Yep. Wow. Can't compete with Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, well. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was Gumpier? Okay. It was Gumpier. It was a huge year at the Oscars. It was Forrest Gump, Quiz Show, Shawshank, and, oh, four, wow. and four Weddings at a Funeral. And a Funeral. <laughs> at a Funeral. <laughs> Right. Uh, a lot of business going wow. on at that funeral. We didn't invite you. 94, that was Ed Wood with Martin Landau. Oh, that's right. um, yeah. Damn, that's. It was it's a great crazy. Year. Like every year we discuss is always so stacked compared to how things are now. <laughs> but yeah. like, that's crazy to think yeah, about. Yeah, it was a great year. Overall, the film was universally praised. It was the number one film of 1994 on over a dozen top 10 lists, has a 94 on Metacritic, and a 92% currently on Rotten Tomatoes. Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly said he felt high on the rediscovery of how pleasurable a movie can be. I'm not sure I've ever encountered a filmmaker who combines discipline and control with sheer wild-ass joy the way that Tarantino does. Kenneth Turin of the LA Times wrote one of the more negative reviews, saying, The writer-director appears to be straining for his effects. Some sequences, especially one involving bondage, harnesses, and homosexual rape, have the uncomfortable feeling of creative desperation, of someone who is afraid of losing his reputation, scrambling for any way to offend sensibilities. Um, adding Pulp Fiction to his roster of great movies in 2001, Roger Ebert called Pulp Fiction the most influential film of the decade. So what is your history with Pulp Fiction? I got the idea. The last liquor store we stuck up, remember? Mm-hmm. All the customers kept coming in. Yeah. You got the idea, taking their wallets. Mm-hmm. Now that was a good idea. Thank you. Made more from the wallets than we did from the register. Yes, we did. A lot of people come to restaurants. A lot of wallets. Pretty smart, huh? Pretty smart. I'm ready. Let's do it right now, right here. Come on. Right. Same as last time, remember? Your crowd control. I handle employees. Mm-hmm. Mm. I love you, Pumpkin. I love you, honey bunny. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Any of you fucking pricks move! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! Well since I did not see rated R movies at the time that this movie came out. I did not see this movie, nor did I see it for several years afterward. Of course, I was aware of Pulp Fiction, especially the poster, which was (laughs) iconic, and I feel like probably stayed on 
the wall of the video store for <laughs> multiple years. At least it feels that way. I don't recall hearing as much about it as I know that there was, probably because I just wasn't following like the Cannes Film Festival <laughs> uh, at age... <laughs> You know, 11 10, or 11. I probably watched, like, the Oscars for, like, Forrest Gump and The Lion King that year. It was but... The Lion King year, too, yeah. Wow. <laughs> but it wasn't a film that I cared too much about. I remember it winning MTV Movie Awards. I remember Tarantino's speech was, what do you do when you keep losing at the Oscars? You go to the MTV Movie Awards. <laughs> and it's true. They, they rewarded it and nominated it more, I think. I mean, I basically knew this movie by John Travolta and Uma Thurman dancing. That's really all I knew about this movie for years. And maybe Samuel L. Jackson holding a gun and probably swearing, although that would have been like bleeped out in any clip that I would have seen. But it wasn't a film that really appealed to me. Nothing was relatable to me. Like, it wasn't really in a genre that I was drawn to. Like, crime films, obviously, I've seen a lot of crime films, but it's not a a genre that particularly appeals to me, and especially, like, didn't when I was a kid. Did Becky make me watch this? I feel like (laughs) maybe. I mean, it's likely. (laughs) Just round up to Becky made you watch it. (laughs) I want to say I would have tried to see it before film school, but Maybe not. I don't know. I So I either saw it like slightly before film school or Becky made me see it. Well, let's just say that we had to talk about movies. And if I heard you didn't see Pulp Fiction, I would be like, you didn't see she Pulp Fiction. She grabbed me by the ear and <laughs> dragged me into her <laughs> bedroom where there was a poster of Pulp Fiction and natural war killers. She was like, Chris, I'm going to make you my gimp, and I'm going to teach you what gimp means. (laughs) So obviously, like, as someone who went to film school, this was a film that people talked about. I think, like, at the time, like, more recent films were more discussed, like Fight Club and American Beauty. Like, those are (laughs) the films. They're just more recent. Yeah, those are the films we discussed more, but people had obviously seen Pulp Fiction. There's always been this reverence for Pulp Fiction among people who love movies. For some reason, though, this movie has never been very memorable to me. I have seen it, this is maybe like the fourth, maybe the fifth time I've seen it. So I haven't seen it a ton of times, but I always forget large portions of hmm. this film, which is very strange for a film that's so iconic. I mean, I obviously know certain elements of it. When I want to talk about this movie, I'm always like, wait, what happens like after a certain part? Like, I basically remember John Travolta and Uma Thurman dancing, and that's that's kind of it. <laughs> it's a little weird to me that a movie that is this revered and celebrated and famous and important and influential doesn't stick with me very much. And so, coming into it for this, I mean, I, I know my general feeling, which was sort of like, huh, like, it's okay. Like, I like things i don't like other things but i can never put my finger on it because i can never remember exactly what i do or don't like specifically do you remember now i do remember now because i just watched it a week ago okay i did not see this movie at the time that it came out but my cousin dax who's a filmmaker and specifically a writer director was absolutely obsessed and mind blown by this movie i do think it was like one of his big inspirations to go to film school and want to become a writer director himself Himself. And in particular, one of the f- biggest things I will always remember about this movie is that Bruce Willis has a ceramic kangaroo on his nightstand or dresser. The little kangaroo? The little kangaroo. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> that's where the watch is. That's where yeah. he keeps the watch. And my cousin became so obsessed with this kangaroo <laughs> that my dad 
bought him one of those kangaroos because my dad was like super heavy into antiques and was using eBay at the like the very start of eBay. So not only did my dad buy him a ceramic kangaroo that Christmas, he w- bought my cousin something in the range of 30 to 40 ceramic kangaroos. And it like it was one of those things that like went past funny into really weird and then went back to funny again just because he kept getting these fucking kangaroos. Seth, I'm literally Googling the little kangaroo and I'm gonna buy one. <laughs> oh yeah. And you'll see they're like they're really available. They're still really available all over the place. You can still buy them for relatively cheap and it's a really cute little ceramic piece. But that was just one of the most abiding things from it. And it became such a like funny in joke in my family because we would always buy each other very silly gifts at Christmas. So yeah, it was that was a great memory for me, like even well before I saw the movie. My first, and I think what will clearly always be my most abiding memory of seeing Pulp Fiction, was at UV University Village, the tiny little dollar theater across from USC. They would do midnight screenings. And so my my friends who we all lived on the cinema floor in our particular dorm building, we piled into one friend's car. We enjoyed pre-partying in various formats. Like, you didn't have to drive to UV. <laughs> I think we like may have picked up a, like one or two other friends from okay. from off campus too. So yeah, seeing that movie in 35mm at midnight in a packed room of people is the perfect way to see Pulp Fiction. I loved, loved, loved that movie experience, though I usually don't love midnight screenings. Um, I've definitely learned that my body does not handle that <laughs> hour, uh, at least unless I'm at home. How about noon screenings? Yeah. yeah oh, no, no, I'm not going to be up for noon. That's a bit early for me, too. Uh, my peak Seth hours. Has a 4 to 8 p.m. window that's going right. to watch movies. That's right. I've got cable repairman hours. And if we're in that, then we're golden. But otherwise, well, I'll set some alarms. But the most memorable part of that midnight screening of Pulp Fiction was after we'd left the theater and we were in the parking lot piling into my friend's two-door Honda and we heard a yelling fight at the other end of the parking lot and when there were about two or three of us left to get into the car to go, there was a gunshot. (laughs) Oh boy. The car left that parking lot at an approximate rate of speed of 45 miles an hour. (laughs) It was the fastest I have ever left a parking lot in my life. Um, we went to many more midnight screenings and daytime screenings at the UV after that, um, despite that insanity, but that was definitely one of the most memorable movie-going experiences that I will ever have. I believe Near Death by Gunshot is part of the admission when you buy a ticket at the UV theater. I think it is, and again, it also very much fits the tone and tenor of Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know if the UV planned that out ahead of time to accompany our exit, but I'd like to think so. I can literally remember seeing this movie for the very first time. I was 11 or 12, maybe 12, My sister would have been 14 or 15. She had a bootleg copy of the movie. I don't know how she got it. I don't know if she saw it in theaters. Probably not. She must have gotten it from a friend. And she had seen it before. So she wanted to show me this movie for some reason. So I can blame her (laughs) for that. Was it one of the bootlegs where there's people like standing up in in the theater? Like, no, 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 okay. <laughs> not a camera no. camera shot. Oh. Wait, in VHS, right? Not DVD? VHS. Okay, VHS. Yeah. I remember we were sitting on the floor in my parents' room watching it on TV, 
And it was the diner scene in the beginning. And I remember being, I was so young. I was confused what was happening. And she was like explaining to me, like, they're about to rob the restaurant. And there were Asian subtitles. And I don't know if it was Chinese or Japanese, but like it was widescreen. Okay. Um, okay. But you know, it's a, it's a square TV back then, but it was widescreen. And in the black bottom part, there were subtitles, Chinese or Japanese. And I thought it was a directorial choice. <laughs> <laughs> Again, for Tarantino, that would fit. Honestly, yeah. It's like a Kill Bill-esque <laughs> well, choice there. I, I literally was like, that's interesting. <laughs> but that's how young I was. That's awesome. Um, I don't remember finishing the movie with her. I think that we watched up until the end of Mia and Vince's date. And I don't know how it happened, but that movie eventually became fused with me. <laughs> 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 you became the Brundle fiction. <laughs> yes. Um, at, at some point, my sister would say, like, that was my movie. <laughs> and I'm like, nope, it's my movie now. Even though I was four years younger than her. She's like, I have merged with the VHS. <laughs> I now have subtitles on me. <laughs> I was Mia Wallace for Halloween when I was 15. I had two Pulp Fiction posters on, on my wall of my room. One was the classic, iconic poster, and the other one was an enormous wall-sized production still of John Travolta and Samuel Jackson pointing the gun. Right. Um, and it was black and white and huge. It filled half of one of my walls. I remember, like, and even, like, at the, there were, like, a poster stand on the campus at USC, and that was one of the ones they had. Like, that yeah. production still is also another, like, iconic image yes. from that movie. And that's, like, not from a shot from the movie, because it's the wrong angle, but, yeah. I wrote my college essay to get into USC film school on the spiritual undertones present in Pulp Fiction, and about how the movie is about redemption that you get from saving others. <laughs> I can verify that that's true, because I have read the essay. <laughs> Can you please read from the essay no, now? No. My live journal username was Raven McCoy. <laughs> I was hoping you would mention that one. <laughs> yep. And my profile picture was Mia drinking the $5 shake. I would call this my favorite movie of all time. This is the answer I would give people when they ask me. And honestly, I still probably would. I think nowadays it kind of more depends on my mood. But like, if you're really like asking me from a favorite movie of all time, it's Pulp Fiction. It means a lot to me. <laughs> Man, I don't know why, but but just something about this movie just has stuck with me over the years. Maybe because I watched it at such a young age. Maybe because it's just really good. I don't know. But it is like... You know, if I could think of something good, I would probably get it tattooed on me. I don't have uh, any stats on the N-word in the movie, but the word fuck is used 265 times. Jules' uh, wallet, bad motherfucker, belongs to Quentin Tarantino, so his wallet's in this movie and his car. So as far as casting goes, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis wanted the role of Vincent Vega. Huh. Uh, but Tarantino huh. wanted John Travolta after he was recommended by James Gandolfini. Uh, Michael Madsen was also considered for that, and I think he had a prior commitment, which yes. is how... he wow. was. Um, he decided to take a role in Wyatt Earp. Mickey Rourke was considered for the role of Butch. I could see that. For the role of Mia Wallace, many, many, many actresses were considered. Isabella Rossellini, Meg Ryan, Daryl Hannah, Joan Cusack... Alfre Woodward, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Holly Hunter, Jennifer Aniston, and Michelle Pfeiffer. Chris's head ricocheted in 40 different directions. I <laughs> want to see a version of this movie that's just all of them <laughs> in the diner sequence. Yeah. <laughs> what movie is that? I'm Not There, where all the different actors play Bob Dylan. <laughs> Alfre Woodard? <laughs> Alfre Woodard. Yes. Like, that's... I love Alfre Woodard, but I just... Like, <laughs> yeah. She's a very different... 
type. It's a very different spirit. I'm sure. I'm sure she could do it, but yeah, very different. Yeah, type. yeah. Well, I That's find interesting. it interesting. As far as I know, in '94, all of those actresses have had big hits, or mm-hmm. you know, were names. But Uma Thurman was not. Uma Thurman was really under the radar. I think she was in like one or two movies before this, but she was only 23 when she filmed this, so she was very young. So it's just interesting that he decided to go with Uma after all that. Yeah, she'd been in. I know she was in like Dangerous Liaisons, the one from like '88 or '89 or something like that, and that was maybe her very first breakout. But yeah, she. I don't think she had had like a huge or anything so guys what do you think of pulp fiction uh. <laughs> are you being sarcastic you're not being sarcastic <laughs> i don't know i have a lot Say of conflicting something. feelings <laughs> i mean i guess i'll start with just tarantino overall and i would call myself like kind of a reluctant fan of his maybe a begrudging fan <laughs> Everyone is so enthusiastic about him and his movies, and especially this movie, that I always, like, my natural instinct is to be like, yeah, but what about, you know, and, like, to, like, be a bit of a contrarian, because I just feel like there's no, especially, like, around this film and, and his early films, I feel like there was no space for, like, real critique. Like, his movies are so, like, take it or leave it. Like, it, it, it's hard to pull them apart without unraveling the whole thing, because they're such a concoction. And so, overall, I just, I don't think this is one of his best movies. And I know, like, it's on the, like, AFI list of 100 mov- greatest movies of all time. It, you know, won the Palme d'Or. It was, like, hugely influential. Like, I know all of that intellectually, but I don't see it when I watch this movie. I see good things, like, and and things that I like. But I also see a lot of things that I don't think are that great or don't really like that much or could critique. And... I just feel like it's, like, a dirty word to even say that. Like, this movie is just kind of taken for granted as this perfect, like, wonderful thing that it's hard to feel okay about critiquing it. That might have changed a little bit with, like, things that we are more cognizant of in pop culture, like, the last few years of, like, around Me Too or race. You know, we're starting to have more conversations about those things and I think that kind of opens a door to at least re-examine some of Tarantino's stuff but in general I find just like the legacy of this movie frustrating because I like I just do not see the movie that it seems like everybody else sees part of that is probably because I didn't see it at the time and if you know I had been 15 or 20 when this movie came out and all of a sudden that this movie came out and I had you know I only had films that came before this to reference, you know, it probably would have felt a lot fresher, but this movie did create a lot of bad imitators, and I think created a lot of bad ticks in filmmakers coming after this, that it's hard not to then kind of retroactively be annoyed at Pulp Fiction for creating those things. But I also think, like, I was able to separate that, and I can just look at this movie and say, I like some of it, and I don't like some of it, so I I do kind of think it's overrated. Sorry. Is that okay? It's difficult not to agree fully with Chris here, especially in the context that you were just mentioning of the kind of untouchability of this movie especially, but Tarantino more broadly. I think he is... I think he is a hat on which a lot of straight men of certain ages hang their sense of masculinity. Not just in the 90s, but even now, I think 
Chris, you're exactly right in terms of just the the depth and breadth of the cultural impact of especially this movie, but again, Tarantino more broadly on on filmmaking. I think all of that says so much that there has been exceedingly little, if any, room to have any kind of nuance or any kind of real analysis of his movie, much less criticism. Like, I, I just don't think that many people, like, broadly speaking, like, engage with his movies in a deeper way and ask deeper questions about his movies because they are of such a piece and are so formalistic and all of the parts are the parts that, like, if you pull one string very quickly, the whole thing can come apart. And there's a way in which I don't necessarily see that as a weakness, because I really do think that that's the product of all of Quentin Tarantino's intents, like in in his intention in making movies. Like, I think Tarantino as a filmmaker wants to make movies and not like art films. And I think his intention is very much, you know, get the butts in the seats, make people excited and happy and jazzed that they watched this movie. So there's there's a way that that in itself kind of precludes, you know, going, diving super deep and asking like really probing questions about any particular character, any particular movie. Much like Natural Born Killers, I do think this movie's a mess. But unlike Natural Born Killers, I think the messiness of this movie is a detriment to it because it is completely episodic. It is an episodic movie in every single way. And the episodes are presented out of order. And I think the way that some of the episodes are ordered benefits it. I think some of the way some of the episodes are ordered really detracts from it and does nothing to help sustain the momentum of the movie. So I think there are times when the movie just comes to a crashing halt for no reason. The second half of this movie, I've always felt really kind of drags ass compared to the rest of it. At the same time, there's a lot of it that I still love. You know, like I love... I love all the scenes in the diner. I love, like, the robbery. I love Tim Roth's character and and his partner. I love the way that Samuel L. Jackson's character de-escalates that situation while also escalating it a bunch of times in the middle of it. But I also feel like so many parts of this movie feel like they're not parts of this movie. And the only thing that even roughly grafts them into the movie is just by virtue of the fact that it's out of order. So you kind of just have to go along for the whole of the ride. I think I used to feel like this movie was way more than the sum of its parts, because I think you know, the first few times I saw it, I very much got swept up in the Pulp fictionness of it all. But now, a lot more of its seams and stitches are on screen. There are a lot more moments where I felt like, you know, well, like, what is this really doing to advance this overall story? Like, why was this section put so much later to the point where I've already completely forgotten, like, the the setup that this is finally paying off. Overall, I found a lot of it very enjoyable, but there were also parts where I was, like, feeling pretty bored. And I do think by the end of it, it, it does kind of overstay its welcome. <laughs> what about uh, you, Becky? Do you, do you think it sucks now? I can't believe I have to defend this movie. <laughs> Guys, man... Rough. <laughs> Rough. 
We are like apparently out of proportion <laughs> with like I think if you picked a random sampling of people who love movies, I don't think two thirds of them would be kind of critical of this film. Guys, I fucking love this movie still. Every fucking not every fucking second. Not every fucking second. There are there are two things I don't like about it. We will get into that. Otherwise, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> it is still my one of my top favorite movies of all time. I have to curse a lot in this episode because Tarantino. I enjoyed the fuck out of it. I, I loved watching this. It had been maybe a few years since I've seen it. And the second I heard Miserloo in the beginning, I was so happy. Like, I just like lit up. I love it all. <laughs> and I can't disagree with you guys more. <laughs> So this should be interesting. <laughs> well, you're going to have to try to disagree with us more because there's more of the episode <laughs> to go. <laughs> Guys, that's it. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> I truly don't know where to start because I could just make you a big laundry list of all the things I love. but And you may not agree. I don't know. <laughs> are the things that you love moments or are they characters? I or love the whole. They... Yeah. <laughs> I love it all. <laughs> I mean, when I hear people say that they love this movie, they usually you know, talk about the dialogue, certain moments, certain scenes, but I never quite get what they see in the film, like, as a whole. Usually when I say what I love about a movie, I'm talking about, like, a theme that I like or something that, like, moves me, and it feels like the things that people like about this movie are, like, specific lines or references or something like that. So I'm just wondering, and, like, it's fine if that's what you like about the movie, but is there something, like, sort of larger that, like, looms for you as to what you like? Um... I think that the reason I love watching it is not because it presents this amazing theme, you know, that makes me think about life. I think there is one. I think that it feels plotless, but there's a plot and there's, um, as you read in my, <laughs> in, mm-hmm. my in my USC uh, entrance essay, um, I think there's definitely like thought behind it. It's not just a series of scenes that are not connected or have no overarching theme. But I guess that's not why I keep going to it. I think it is just so inventive. It is fun. It is so well acted. The dialogue is great. I like the relationships between the characters. I think it's beautiful. I think there's shots in this movie that are gorgeous. You can tell it's shot on film and there's like this graininess to it. I mean, I'm watching it on Blu-ray and it's still just like beautiful grainy film with beautiful lighting. Even like the the one thing that called out to me this time was they're just in an elevator. And I was like, just the way this elevator is shot, I was like, this is beautiful to look at. I constantly think that it is not going the way you think it's going to go. Like it defies normal narrative and it's fun. I like watching it. I think because of all those things. I recently watched Whiplash again. And that movie has a lot to say about, like, what you do for perfection. And it makes me think about, like, what I would do to, like, be the top or wouldn't do. And that's a movie that I walk away thinking of the bigger picture. And this movie, I don't. But that's not necessarily bad. Like, I walk away from this movie with a huge smile on my face. Like, I had a great time watching it. I was kind of surprised by how relatively low budget this film looks this time around. Not that it looked bad or shoddy, really. There are a couple moments where it feels like, you know, maybe the work of someone who's not, like he wasn't a super experienced director at this point. But for the most part, it looks good and and fine. But it doesn't have the glossy and like high production value that like his later films do, because he obviously got plenty of budget for his later films. And this was still, you know, a relatively small budget film. I also thought that there's some intentionality of the kind of grain of it and the griminess because it's 
modeled after Pulp Fiction exactly, and like yeah. the shitty paper that it was printed on. I did appreciate that. Like, I and to me, that is one of the things that does make it feel fun as a as taken as a whole piece. Yeah, I was more thinking of like later Tarantino and his imitators where it feels very flashy. Like this movie wasn't as like flashy and like I honestly expected this to feel a little bit more like natural born killers in a way where it's like super like stylized and like frenetic and it's not really like that at all. It just kind of has that reputation I think because it is Tarantino and some of his later films have more of that kind of sense. But yeah, I mean it, it was the look of it and feel of it is a lot more down to earth than I was kind of remembering it as. Yeah, I agree. There's only $4 million budget. I think most of that went to the actors. I love, again, like with Reservoir Dogs, I think it's fascinating hearing criminals speak like normal people. They're not the criminals you see in genre movies where they only talk about the gig and they're only obsessed with money and greed. And then they, you know, it's just, it's 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 a, it's a gangster movie, but it's not. Like he just does something so inventive with it, what they're talking about McDonald's and they're talking about foot massages. And I, I just find that really fascinating to watch because they're getting ready to kill a bunch of guys. While they're just kind of talking about McDonald's. And to me, like that play with the genre, I want to say, like, it's never been done before, but like this movie still, like, it's been done countless times since Pulp Fiction, but like I still feel like this is just so good because the acting is so good. The dialogue is is so clever and so interesting to listen to. Like, how many times in my life have I listened to them talk about foot massages and like, you know, and yet I could listen to that conversation all day. Like, I just, I find it so interesting. And then the way they're playing it and what's going on. On while they're having that discussion, I find so interesting. What's a foot massage? A foot massage is nothing. I give my mother a foot massage. It's laying your hands in a familiar way on Marcellus's new wife. I mean, is it as bad as eating her pussy out? No. It's the same fucking ball pump. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop right there. Eating a bitch out and giving a bitch a foot massage ain't eating the same fucking thing. It's not. It's the same ballpark. Ain't no fucking ballpark neither. Now look, maybe your method of massage differs from mine. But you know, touching his wife's feet and sticking your tongue in the holiest of holies ain't the same fucking ballpark. It ain't the same league. It ain't even the same fucking sport. Look, foot massages don't mean shit. Have you ever given a foot massage? <laughs> don't be telling me about foot massages. I'm the foot fucking master. You giving a lot of them? Shit, yeah. Got my technique down and everything. I don't be tickling or nothing. Would you give a guy a foot massage? Fuck you. <laughs> I did love the monologue about the foot massage and like the 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 ballpark. Yeah, that um, was clear that that was maybe the most personal writing Quentin Tarantino's <laughs> ever done. I love that about it, and I love a lot of those moments. And I do think that in this movie, you know, I, I think especially Samuel L. Jackson and, and to a lesser degree maybe John Travolta do a really good job of grounding those characters um, and of elevating everything that's on the page to make it really feel like they are people. Like, what did you guys think of the, uh, what country are you from scene? Like the big kahuna burger scene, the scene with the three guys Oh, in the apartment. It's a suspenseful scene because you know pretty much what's going to happen. I think they're going to go kill those guys. I think that's probably pretty clear. Even if you haven't seen the film before, there's a lot of hamburgers in this movie. <laughs> that's your takeaway. <laughs> They're talking about hamburgers on the way there, and then they get there, and there's a hamburger. And then in the date with Uma Thurman, there's, like, more talking about hamburgers. And (laughs) I like hamburgers. (laughs) Stop there. (laughs) And 
of episodes. Stop it. I, so I do like some of those non sequitur conversations. Like the foot massage one is good, but but it's not non sequitur. Well, it's not exactly the Royale with cheese is pretty non sequitur. The foot massage isn't because it it builds up the character of Marcellus and what's going to happen um, with Uma Thurman. But like in general, like all of the dialogue, like you could move it. Like, you could move the the foot massage conversation to the car and the Royale with cheese to the elevator. Like, there's just this sense that, like, everything is just sort of a random convert. Like, he has this, like, jar of random conversations and he just picks one out and puts them in different The scenes. monologue jar. He just pulls see, one out. See, I don't see it that way because it seems that way on the surface. But they're having the conversation about McDonald's. Because he's been in Amsterdam. He's been out of the country for years. And so that, like, provides, like, character about, like, where he is and what he's doing and where he's been. And the whole thing of the foot massage is to show... Of course, it goes on a tangent of, like, foot massages don't mean anything. But they're talking about this guy was just rumored to have massaged Mia Wallace's feet and he got thrown out a window. So later, when he almost has her overdose in his care, like, you know, oh, shit, he's in trouble. Like, it's not just she's gonna die. It's he's gonna to fucking be tortured to death or something because this guy means business so i love in his movies where you think it's just like a non sequitur thing but really like he's giving you exposition and foreshadowing and tension in a really unexpected way sometimes yes i think sometimes no i think you're right about the foot massage scene and i think that's maybe why that one jumps out as better like the royale with cheese is like fine but, like, okay, he was in Amsterdam, but, like, I don't actually get why he was in Amsterdam or, like, what that has to do with anything. Like, it doesn't really, he doesn't seem like someone who's just come from Amsterdam is the only thing he's learned over there about hamburgers. <laughs> like, And that's, like, a nitpick. Like, I don't, I don't need to know everything. But it just, it doesn't really feel like it adds up to very much. Like, it's a lot of screen time for very little actual information that And it's get. not like all that information really reveals anything about who he is or what he wants. Like, I I would argue that Samuel L. Jackson's character is more fleshed out in the sense that you get a sense of his trajectory where he's at as a person, you know, and there's an arc to that. And there doesn't necessarily need to be some huge arc for every character, but I'm just saying, like, when 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 that is clearly on screen for, like, Samuel L. Jackson's character, I don't really think it's as nearly as developed for... Travolta's character. Well, and I think you could switch their dialogue and it would... That too. Like, Samuel L. Jackson could be saying the thing about the Royale with cheese and it's not specific to the character. Or, like, someone later... Like, Harvey Keitel could do the same thing. Or this monologue could have come from the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. Like, it, it's not specific to this movie, really, or to these characters. It's There's a very, like, sameness. And I think his writing got better in this sense in later movies and he's writing for different people in different periods and there's a little more specificity but in this movie, I just feel like he jumbles the time, but you could also just rewrite, like, move big pieces of the script around and it wouldn't really matter. I mean, what I get out of it is, like, in that first scene, what I'm getting is also just their relationship to each other, like how they're talking to each other. It's kind of the same with Reservoir Dogs in the opening scene. You think he's just having a pop culture conversation about Madonna. And that is what's happening. They're talking about Madonna. That is a segue into them talking about K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s, which kind of sets up why he's picking these songs for this movie that are very 70s-centric. But it also shows all of the people in one space together and their interactions with each other. So it's not just we're talking about Madonna because 
Quentin Tarantino wanted to riff on that. Maybe he did, but I think it also shows character and relationships. And I think a lot of those conversations in his movies that are about pop culture things are not actually about pop culture things. They're about either how this person reacts to something in the world, or it's how the two characters that are in the conversation or more are reacting to each other. Do they like each other? Do they disagree? Are they both laughing together? Like, I think that's an important distinction in this movie to show that they're pretty much on the same page, except later there's a turn where John Travolta is on this side and Samuel Jackson's on this side and they definitely are not on the same page anymore. So in how I view it, like, to me, it's all really important. What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? What country are you from? What? what? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? What? English, motherfucker! Do you speak it? Yes! Then you know what I'm saying. Yes. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. What? Say what again. Say what again. I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. He's black. Go on. He's bald. Does he look like a bitch? What? Does he look like a bitch? No! Then why you try to fuck him like a bitch, Brett? Yes, you did. Yes, you did, Brett. You tried to fuck him. And Marcellus Wallace don't like to be fucked by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. I I love that scene. Like, I think it's perfection, how it's played, the tension. It reminds me of a more comedic version of the scene in Inglorious Bastards with Christoph Waltz when we first see him with the dairy farmer. And it's just like a very long scene and there's just so much tension and you're just waiting for the shoe to drop. And I just think Samuel Jackson is just so good in this movie, but particularly that scene where he's just like, mm-hmm, this is a tasty burger. Like I this could is like- This a tasty burger. Every, every line of his is just a perfect line reading. I think Samuel L. Jackson, like, even for an ensemble cast that's as stacked as this, I think he elevates this movie like single-handedly, no question. Yeah, and that scene is very tense because, yeah, I mean, he, he does become very menacing in that scene. Like, you you have seen these guys joking around in a way that makes them feel rather likable. And then mm-hmm. in this moment, he becomes someone that you, you're kind of more on the side of the guys that are sitting there, like, and you're kind of like, uh-oh, like, this isn't going to end well. And you are kind of dreading what's going to happen to them. So it is a good, I think, juxtaposition of something kind of frivolous and silly with something that's suspenseful yeah like it's so funny when he says they speak english and what and he's like sticking a gun in his face and i'm just like i've seen this movie ten thousand times and i'm still laughing at his delivery it's just so funny because of what he's doing in the moment and he's acting like a 10 year old (laughs) i think this movie really comes alive the moment that uma thurman comes on screen yes talk about uma yeah she's really good in this movie she is a heightened character like everyone in this this movie like i'm not sure i 100 percent believe that she's a real person just like the way that i you know don't really believe anyone in any tarantino movie is like 100 percent a real person but she does feel much more real than anything else for as like kind of bizarre as she is like you just cannot 
stop watching her and every like line out of her mouth like you are basically vincent in this and you're just like who's this like let me drip like hang off of every word that she's saying and like give me more of this like (laughs) and just like the movie comes alive you know i think when she leaves the movie it also kind of goes off a cliff and and we'll get there absolutely like dips down the moment she's not the focus of this movie um, I th- just love that very first scene, you know, where uh, Vincent Vega comes to her house. Uh, Son of a Preacher Man starts playing, and you hear uh, Mia on the intercom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this movie, of course, like every other Tarantino movie, is very much like everything is mediated through either pop culture or through like screens and separations and distance between people. And I love that like interaction between them where like she's on the intercom as he kind of wanders around her house like going to make a drink hi vincent i'm getting dressed the door's open come inside and make yourself a drink mia Vincent. Vincent. I'm on the intercom. Where is where is the intercom? It's on the wall by the two African fellows. To your right. Warm. Warmer. Disco. Hello. Push the button if you want to talk. Hello. Go make yourself a drink and I'll be down in two shakes of a lamb's tail. The bar's by the fireplace. Okay. And it's such a postmodernism trope that their first interaction with each other is like through surveillance screens and an intercom. And like in that first scene, you see the bottoms of her feet before you ever see her face. Literally, like the last shot of that scene is like inside their house and it's a long tracking shot following Uma Thurman's feet. But you're so entranced by like whatever spell this woman is casting that you just completely follow her. And then it cuts to Vincent's car pulling up and only then do you like finally see Mia's face. But yeah, I've always loved Uma Thurman. I've always found her just completely entrancing and mesmerizing as a person. So I do think this is one of those instances where like the casting and the writing are very complementary to to each other. I can't really see anyone else doing this role that effectively and like throwing themselves into kind of the, I don't know if camp is necessarily the right word, the kind of almost throwback attitude of her character to me feels a lot like a pastiche in the same way that Jackrabbit Slim's The Diner is a kind of pastiche of all of these old Hollywood icons and tropes just all jumbled together. I just love her so much and I love that character so much. Yeah, she's almost playing in some ways like a femme fatale, but she's using like sort of that alluring quality, but also doing something else with it that's hard to like. She's also kind of this manic pixie dream girl, but in a way that. Manic surf rock dream girl, please. Yeah. <laughs> she's doing a few different things, I feel like. I don't know why I call her a manic pixie dream girl. I think the whole thing with them is that they're like solving some problem that the main character is going through. But I don't know if I well, would call but her I that. think that 
that her, Krista, what you were saying, I think that her attitude and all of that is very much a defense mechanism and a like way of protecting herself against a kind of relationship that she's in. Whether she thinks she has the upper hand or not, she very much does not have the upper hand and it has kind of walled herself off to the danger that she's clearly in. Well, that's what my question is about this character is like, why is she with him? She just seems like too smart and like it doesn't seem like she would morally align with this guy. She's doing coke all through the movie. It's not like she's like a beacon of... Yeah, I don't know. know? I guess so. Maybe her performance is just too good. Like, it's hard to believe that this cool person would be... Do we even see the two of them together? Briefly. Briefly. There's there's like a really quick like flashback or something like that. No, it's... He's on the phone with the wolf and she comes by, says nothing. They're at a pool. And then also um, it's after Butch kills the other boxer and uh vince vega is walking down the the aisle like backstage and he's she's like i never thank you for dinner and she's just in the same room that's right okay i love him with in this i think she's great clearly because she's on the poster you think she's gonna be in the movie more <laughs> but like that said i love this movie so much that it doesn't bother me that she's not in the rest of it because i think she just makes a meal out of the time she has and it's great <laughs> Hey, what? Uncomfortable silences. Why do we feel it's necessary to yak about bullshit in order to be comfortable? I don't know. That's a good question. That's when you know you found somebody really special. And you can just shut the fuck up for a minute, comfortably share silence. Well, I don't think we're quite there yet, but don't feel bad. We just met each other. I'll tell you what. I'm going to go to the bathroom and powder my nose. You sit here and think of something to say. I'll do that. I love that date. I love Jack Rabbit Slims. I wish it was a real place. I would have every birthday party there. Why isn't it a real place with all these <laughs> like pop-up restaurants? I loved Vincent's line after Mia asks him what he thinks of Jack Rabbit Slims. And he says, I think it's like a wax museum with a pulse. And here's why I love this. I think I'm just like a person that's really into postmodern movies or like maybe I came to love movies in the postmodern era um, because I loved Moulin Rouge and John Travolta, the actor, being in a movie where he is dancing in a wax museum with a pulse. It's like such an homage to like all his other musical filmography. Grease and Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, that it's like, like, he's one of the wax statues. He may have more wax than some of the statues. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just, I love that. Like, it's something that it could totally pass you by. It does not change the movie. But if you are familiar with John Travolta and what he brings to the role, like, it's just makes you put a smile on your face that you're like, there I'm seeing John Travolta dance again. Because at this point in time, like, he was in the Look Who's Talking movies, which were relative hits. He danced in those, too. Yeah, but, like, you hadn't seen... Sexy John Travolta. Sexy, like, like the... Maybe he danced in those, but not really. But, like, you know, the dancer from Saturday Night Fever in Greece, And it just, like, it brought that back into this because you could just, like, tell the love that Tarantino has for movies. John Travolta is, like, probably one of his, like, icons from his days growing up. I actually would argue that John Travolta's performance and character really only come alive when Mia shows up. 
obviously, like, that's part of the story, is, like, the, they clearly have this huge spark together. But, yeah, for me, it was, like, I felt like his character was so much more interesting with Mia than he was with Samuel L. Jackson. See, I think that this is John Travolta's best acting ever. Like, eons distance. Like, I I liked him in Saturday Night Fever. Like, I think he was great, you know? I think he was nominated for Best Actor. And, like, you know, he's great in Greece. He was great. You know, he's, like, a good showman. But this, he's so natural that I literally do not see him as John Travolta. I see him as Vincent Vega. It makes me sad that he never got a role this good that made use of those acting talents. Because after this, he did come back into the spotlight after being kind of gone for a while but like the the roles were not good roles were really not good yeah no i i I shared that opinion and like i especially like the scene where vincent uh where you know mia overdoses and vincent drives over to his dealer's place and like drives across the lawn smashing directly into the guy's car to like get in the rush to get her help and the the scene with the adrenaline shot i think Mm -hmm. is fantastic it's such a like both funny and intense moment and my energy levels have been so in the shitter lately that i wonder whether or not the whole adrenaline shot to the (laughs) chest thing might be a good thing to try i don't know i don't know Let's, let's see what could go wrong i've got one here so as soon as we're done while i'm doing this you take off her shirt and find her heart That'd be exact. Yeah, it's gotta be exact. We were shot in the heart, so I guess it's gotta be fucking exact. I don't know exactly where her heart is. I mean, I think it's right here. That's it. This is it? Alright, what I need is a big fat magic marker. You got it? What? A magic marker! A a felt pen! A fucking black magic marker! Come on, man, hurry up! Fuck. Okay, okay, okay. I think it's ready. Alright, quick. Hurry up, man. Okay, hurry up. Here, I'll tell you what to do. No, 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 man, man, I ain't give, you, you, you're gonna give it a shot. No, you're gonna give it a shot. I ain't giving yeah, it a shot. I ain't giving it a shot. I never done this yeah, before. I ain't never done it before either, all right? I ain't starting now. Look, you brought her here, and that means that you're gonna give it a shot. The day that I bring an ODM bitch to your house, then I give it a shot. Give it a shot. Give it Here. Give it What I love about him in that car and him like really screeching and driving to the garage is that he's talking about with Lance the last time he sees him somebody keyed my car when I was in Amsterdam and don't fuck with another man's vehicle and I would fucking kill that guy and then like that's how bad this situation got that he will crash his car into the house and like I feel like that's a payoff that you don't necessarily like see but like like I think I saw this movie quite a few times before I'm like wait a minute he fucking loves his car and just crashed it and it was like that's what that was paying off it's a really fun date and just a fun like mini movie within a movie very much there's a lot of people trying each other's drinks in this movie as well as hamburgers <laughs> that's even covid times <laughs> doesn't hold up <laughs> Uh, $5 is the average price of a milkshake now. No, I was going to say that $5 is actually kind of cheap for a shake in these days. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a testament to like how much we like Uma Thurman in a brief amount of time that we really see her. I mean, it's almost just this one diner scene that we really get to know her and, you know, and then she's dying and we want him to save her and we want them to be together. And I do really like the way that this kind of, because like if, if this had not happened it's quite likely that they would have had some kind of he would have massaged her foot or something like that Mm -hmm. so i do like the way that this kind of huge event 
sequence of her almost dying and him having to save her, like, kind of sabotages this chemistry they have. And they, you know, afterwards are kind of like, well, I guess we're going to just, you know, not mention this. And there is something, I think, poignant to that sense of they clearly have some kind of attraction and chemistry. They have great chemistry. And it's hard to imagine her with her husband. Like, doesn't seem like a match to me. Like, (laughs) her and, and John Travolta seem like a great match, but... The fact that basically they they can't be together does add, I think, more emotion to this movie than it has elsewhere. I think this is Quentin Tarantino's most romantic movie. There's this sexual tension between Uma Thurman and John Travolta. Like, that's the whole sequence ends with him, like, kissing, like, blowing a kiss to her. I like Um, that air kiss. I like that they don't sleep together, that nothing actually happens, but you could tell that, like, he actually likes her. You know, he has a crush. But also there's Fabian and Butch. And I actually really felt, and we can talk more in depth about them in a bit, but, like, I actually felt like they actually really did love each other. Like, he actually did want to, like, go away with her, and he went back to get her, and, like, they love each other, and I actually, like, felt that connection. And then the bank robbers in the beginning, <laughs> I feel like they really love each other. Hun- honey bunny. <laughs> honey bunny and pumpkin. Like, I feel like they really love each other. I can and- go with that. They're very concerned about each other's well-being yes, in the standoff. They're very concerned. Don't you fucking shoot him! <laughs> and I feel like there's the Mickey and Mallory-ness that, you know, in their fucked up way, I think they love each other. But, like, I tried to think of other instances of romance in his movies and I could not think of any. More than that, there's no sex scenes at all. Yeah. I think, yeah, to me, that's the biggest surprise of it. I watched Django Unchained again because I hadn't seen it since theaters and that one is kind of framed as a romance between Django and... Uh, his, like, wife? Yeah, she's a slave that he goes to rescue. Are they ever together in the movie? Like, I forget. Yeah. yeah. I forget. But I, I think that movie, like, really undercuts her character. She's not much of a character and so it has these overtures of a romance and it ends like with them like riding off into the sunset so it has like sort of an external romance but I don't think it actually sells it. I would I think agree that this is the one that has like a genuine sense of chemistry between two people in the scene. I don't like the whole Bruce Willis section so we'll... You don't like the gold watch sequence? No. Yeah we should talk about (laughs) the Bruce Willis of it because we've skipped a bit over Bruno but we need to talk about Bruno. (laughs) We need to talk about Butch... Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but I I don't really like his romance with his wife, girlfriend, girlfriend. girlfriend. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think she is a manic pixie dream girl. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, that was yeah. My note of like the women in this movie are all kind of manic pixie dream girls, and I think Uma Thurman obviously has the best scene, the most like time, and I think her performance like elevates that, but she still is kind of like... What is a manic pixie dream girl to you? Like a woman who just like exists basically as a male fantasy. Like she is... Usually a bit flighty, a bit head in the clouds. See that of Uma Thurman whatsoever though. I, I can, well, you can I make think... the case for Fabian, I guess, but like, cause she's not real, like a huge character. Like, In Mia's case, maybe it's maybe that's kind of mollified by the fact that she's so coked out that She's literally like disconnected from reality. I just don't. I feel like she's a real person with a real past, and I don't know. Like she doesn't seem to be just a supporting hanger on to to Vince. Yeah, I mean, to me, like this all felt like the cool girl trope that like 
um, Jillian Flynn like wrote about in Gone Girl, where it's just like they're very like especially like in uh, True Romance too is like these women are all just like sort of there to be along for the ride with the guy. The guy is the one driving everything and. The girl is just kind of there to be, like, cool and sexy and say, like, have these conversations that guys find interesting and, like, eat a raw hamburger and, and, you know, drink and and do coke, you know. And if the woman is not that in a Tarantino movie, she's a doormat, a raging bitch. Uh, or, like, is collateral damage to, to some man on his way to get something. I can't really think of others. But <laughs> well, so there's like the cab driver in this, which is okay. I don't like her. <laughs> I will get to the one of the two things I don't like. Okay, I I don't really like that scene. I think it is important that Butch has someone to talk to, so we get a little bit more of like, oh, I killed him, or you know, I guess in another world, like Fabian maybe could have provided that information, or he could have heard it on the radio in the taxi. But in general, I feel like that scene could have been cut or cut down significantly. I think it actually was cut down significantly because um, I remember seeing a much longer version. I think she's just weird and she stands out as being weird. And the scene is shot strangely. It's shot like, what do they call it? Poor man's like where it's definitely like on a soundstage and the rest of the movie isn't like that. Yeah. So, so f- looking back on it now, I'm like, I don't like that scene. So, Esmeralda, the little low boss, is that Mexican? Your name is Spanish, but I am Colombian. That's some halo you got there, honey. Thank you. And what is your name? Butch. Butch. What does it mean? I'm an American, honey. Our names don't mean shit. So, moving right along, Esmeralda, what is it you want to know? I want to know what it feels like to kill a man. I couldn't tell you. I know he was dead until you told me he was dead. Now that I know he's dead, you want to know how I feel about it? I don't feel the least bit bad about it. It feels like it's in the 40s, but then this woman, she's like a Colombian, like hot woman driving yeah. a cab, which already doesn't feel real. And then she's just like, she's like, I want to know what it's like to kill someone. It's like, what movie is it this? It all yeah. felt very weirdly David Lynchian in a way yeah. that I think Tarantino never, it rightly never tries to do. Um, but yeah, tonally, that was just so disjointed from everything else. To me, honestly, Butch's character feels pretty disconnected from the rest of the movie. Um, I agree. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed quite a bit of it because I do just kind of tend to like Bruce Willis. Well, he's characters con- and performances. He's connected in the fact that we're connected to Marcellus through Uma Thurman, through Vince, who works for them. He ends up killing Vince. He's definitely like not super random and just inserted. Like I feel like he's part of the overall theme of like redemption and read my essay. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. I like that sequence. I I like the whole thing from Christopher Walken down to the Gimp. I. I like I like thing. Christopher Walken, a sort of non sequitur <laughs> monologue. I know it's connected, obviously, to his yes. motivation, but like, especially at the time that we see it, it feels completely disconnected from anything that we've yeah. seen. And if you want someone to deliver a five-minute-long monologue uninterrupted, Christopher Walken is your man. This watch 
was on your daddy's wrist when they were shot down over Hanoi. He was captured, put in a Vietnamese prison camp. He knew that if the gooks ever saw the watch, it'd be confiscated, taken away. The way your dad looked at it, this watch was your birthright. You'd be damned if any slope's gonna put the greasy yellow hands on his boy's birthright, so he hid it. In one place he knew he could hide something, his ass. Five long years he wore this watch, up his ass. Then he died of dysentery, he gave me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass, two years. Then, after seven years, I was sent home to my family, and now, little man, I give the watch to you. Yeah, I just feel bad that we can't quote a single line of that in his voice without saying a racial slur from this movie. <laughs> That's true. The whole <laughs> I'll be damned no if I'll be damned. <laughs> We're going to have to include at least that clip. I think that monologue is maybe the best in cinema <laughs> as far as monologues go. Like, it is just so good and then so funny. I wish that I was an adult in 1994 and could have seen this in the theater. I would have fucking died. Maybe it was like when you saw it in the theater, Seth. I'm sure there were maybe people that hadn't seen it oh yeah i might have been one of them <laughs> yeah i just um, like can you imagine like that much laughter there would have been like oh yeah well and it absolutely killed like i remember that that scene absolutely killed in the theater Okay, so the butch scene, the thing with Esmeralda, goes to Fabian. Next morning, he realizes his watch is missing. As we know through Christopher Walken's monologue, there is a huge backstory for this watch. It is so important as, you know, the MacGuffin thing that he must go back for it. There is no way that he's leaving without it. So he goes back to his apartment, gets a little cocky when he doesn't see anyone there, puts a Pop-Tart in the toaster, then he sees the gun there, shoots Vincent, thinks he's in the clear, runs into Marcellus in a shot that is a direct homage to Psycho. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, And then they get into fisticuffs with their cars. Uh, They end up going into the... Don't forget Kathy Griffin. I will not forget Kathy Griffin. Griffin. As herself. She's credited (laughs) as herself. There's a lot of random... Comedians in this there are movie. A lot of, yeah, there are a lot of comedians in <laughs> this movie. Julia Sweeney's in it. Julia Sweeney's in it. Um, Karen Mariyama, who's another like improv and and like longtime oh. sketch comedy writer. Kathy Cra- yeah. Griffin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very strange. So they basically are about to shoot each other. The pawn shop guy beats him up and then puts ball gags in their mouth and then it takes a turn. <laughs> and they are now captive and Marcellus is chosen first to get raped. Bruce Willis gets away, comes back to save Marcellus. And then Marcellus says, we're cool. Th- this is a very truncated version of the sequence. But I mean, the sequence goes like here to there to there to there to there to there, to there, to there all over. The gimp is also truncated. Yeah. Because they store him in a trunk. In a trunk. You okay? Nah, man. I'm pretty fucking far from okay. What now? What now? Let me tell you what now. I'm gonna call a couple of hard pipe-hitting niggas to go to work on the homes here with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I ain't through with you by damn sight. I'm gonna get medieval on your ass. 
I love this sequence. <laughs> I don't need Mia Wallace in it. When you see it for the first time or the first few times, you're just like, what the fuck just happened? And I think that's what you're supposed to think. I think it's supposed to be like, what is the absolute worst situation you could find yourself in as a man? And it's that. Something that is so, so, so bad that, you know, in every respect as a man. And then what it would take for you to go back and save somebody from that situation. And and that's why as out there and graphic it is, like, to me, it's like Tarantino was thinking what would be the absolute worst situation I could find myself in. Yeah, the worst thing is not, they're all killers, you know, it's not being killed, it's having gay sex. Or being... And- being someone's slave <laughs> yeah but, you know like someone's sex slave in a trunk trapped in a basement you know what i mean like it's not death right but i, I mean i think i think i think this that scene is kind of vile and it really kind of turns my stomach and if you look at it you know as you know a piece of the story i think there's a way you could make it work but i don't think that the mm-hmm. way that it's like written and filmed works at all for one, it just does not feel remotely plausible or thought through that they just... And I get that it's supposed to be like this sort of what-the-fuck moment where they go into this random store where they think they can maybe get help or hide out, and suddenly, like, the store owner of a, of a pawn shop uh, has, like, a sex dungeon in there. But I did not believe that this guy would do that to these people. You know, like, this is a boxer and a, like, hulking, like, it's Ving Rhames. The psychology of, like, why they would take these guys hostage in this moment just didn't make any sense to me. Like, and it's it's just not set up. Like, none of, it doesn't feel real. It feels like almost just like a, like another David Lynch scene, kind of. Or yeah. not the David Lynch, yeah. I don't think, would write this. But that it's just like a total non sequitur of a moment and then like for this movie that's about pretty much you know all the main characters in this movie are killers and sort of unrepentant killers and for this movie to then demonize these gay guys who are obviously rapists terrible people as well you know i'm not saying that they don't deserve to be like i wouldn't even say they were gay like i would say they're rapists you know, yeah, like, but they're raping specifically men. Like, that's all we know of them. And that they're kinky. Yeah. Like, I was thinking about it, and I think this was kind of the first movie I ever saw Bondage Gear. And it instantly, for me, was like, oh, well, you know, if people are into this kind of thing, they're evil people, clearly. Yeah, it just... it it doesn't give them any sort of fleshing out like everyone else has cool dialogue like it it basically just it's like it's okay to like kill people wantonly but oh but if you're gay like you're sick and twisted and you deserve to die well i don't think that the movie's saying it's okay to kill i think it's saying these people are killers what would be horrible to them Bruce Willis, he's not a killer. He's a boxer. He's not a gangster. Marcellus Wallace is. They live in a world of violence and death. But what I'm thinking he was thinking when writing this is like, what would pull them out of that world where like they don't stand a chance? Like they have their guns and they know that world of like shootouts and life or death, but they don't know this world of like, you're going to kidnap me and keep me as a sex slave. Like, I think that's going back to like 
Reservoir Dogs with Mr. White saying, like, this guy's not a professional. Like, there's, like, bad people and then there's worse people. Yeah. Becky, I mostly agree with you in that sense. I don't get the impression from this that Quentin Tarantino is a homophobe or that he was, like, trying to make that as some representation of gay people. It was more just the absence of any gay characters or any presented form of gay romantic relationships or gay lust or anything like that, where it's like, well, you felt the need to make this at least very overtly reminiscent of referring to gay men and gay men's sexual proclivities and kinks. No one in the movie calls them, and I don't want to say the F word, but they never say the F word, right? They just call them rapists. Sure, yeah. I totally understand, like, what you're saying, but I think that Tarantino wasn't calling out the gayness. He was calling out the vile I agree with that. Rapist I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I just, to me, that that to me stands out as a narrative storytelling choice that dares you to either laugh or be offended by the the creepy crazy men and look at how much crazier these men are yeah i think it is for shock value yeah yeah (laughs) i think it is well and i just have like an issue with that specifically being used for shock value when everything else in this movie is so violent and kind of vile as well and is played for laughs and like we can laugh off people's heads getting blown off but oh, we can't laugh at like people having gay sex, like. But it's not gay well, sex. It's, it's, <laughs> well, it's gay I, rape, but it's still like. And I don't think that you're laughing. I think that you're in shock. Like, yeah, I don't think that. I don't that think scene... it's. I don't think it's played for laughs. I do agree with you, Chris, in the sense that a man raping another man is narratively loaded in our culture in a different way than a man raping a woman. It just is. And that's not to say that that necessarily in any way, like, it stands as some kind of judgment of gay people to make that storytelling choice. But deliberately using the the kind of weightedness of of that, of a man raping a man, carries cultural implications and certainly carried cultural implications at the time well yeah and i think it's kind of playing on like the audience's homophobia of like marcellus is a character that we don't particularly like up until this point like he is the bad guy sort of amongst these other he's the bad guys yeah and then at that moment because he's being raped by a man now he now the audience feels sympathy for him and we want to save him but that device has to be used to make him a redeemable character and and it's because the audience feels like oh that would be horrible horrible. I just think it needed a lot more thought and set up and it feels like it was just thrown in here without much thought and as like the most shocking thing that could happen and there's no like broader context or like it just doesn't feel real to me either. And that's where I'll kind of like bridge the gap is I do feel like it's a bit of a cheap and easy deus ex machina really. Really that's what it ends up being at least especially for for uh for Butch. I don't I don't see it that way. I I feel like, I mean, would you go back? Like, you'd have to think pretty hard about it. No, I wouldn't. Well, that's why he does. What I like about this movie is, like, he nearly goes. And I think that the whole point of why it's called The Gold Watch isn't just because he goes back, but, like, there's so much bravery and all the men in his family have been 
in wars and have sacrificed themselves and been through so much that I feel like it's his honor. Like he has this familial honor that he would be betraying himself if he left his fellow soldier behind. Because once they were in that situation, they were on the same page. And that's what stops him. It's, it's, he has a sense of decency in him. I can see that. That, I that can he's see that. like, I can't go. I have to save him. Like, that's not what soldiers do. They don't leave each other behind. I think that could have been accomplished in a different way. Like, without needing to go to, like, the easy, like, rape well. I don't think it's easy. I, I think it. I think he clearly did it for shock. And he also was trying to think of the worst thing ever for a man. I mean, for anyone, really. Well, but specifically for... Okay. Like, I, I, I do, again, I do think that part is, he understood the weight of that. Right. But I think that Butch has a, a character arc. And I feel like the whole sequence, I mean, maybe just like seeing ball gags and rape and like this vileness is not fun. And to me, like, I wouldn't call it fun, but it like is meaningful to me when I watch it that he st- has that, he stops himself and he decides, I'm going to save this person that was going to murder me. I, I do think that is the payoff to walk in speech. I do. Like, I, I think yeah. that is the narrative, like, the direct payoff to that. One of the things I don't understand about this movie and, like, people's enjoyment of it is, like, I do feel like the movie basically peaks an hour in and then just this butch sequence, I don't personally like most of it. It feels kind of like a tangent. But then the next sequence is called the Bonnie situation. And I also feel like that one is just really kind of inert um, and kind of pointless. Like, it really doesn't add anything to the story that's where they basically go to quentin tarantino's house and clean out the car and it's this very long sequence where harvey they have to call harvey keitel for help and his advice is to clean the car (laughs) which they couldn't have thought of on their own apparently like and and get rid of their clothes that's that's all he really does but it takes forever i really didn't find that this sequence added anything to the movie I mean, I hated that they that John that Vincent Vega killed Philomar's character that capriciously and stupidly. Vincent and Jules, I don't think they're like the perfect killers. I don't think they're the most successful assassins ever or whatever. But I do think that they're more careful than that. Well, maybe Jules is, but Vince, as we see, doesn't end alive in this movie. Like he. He's kind of constantly fucking up. That's that's fair. I don't know. It just it really pissed me off. That he shot him? I mean, yeah. I think that shows character of, like, he's not great yeah. <laughs> at his job. They nearly die from that fourth guy coming in from the bathroom. He shoots him in the face. He pretty much would have slept with Mia. Oh, absolutely you know? would have. Or at least would have tried. He leaves her alone long enough to, like, find his heroine, thinks it's coke, and he's not good. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I think that's, like, part of his character is this is what happens if you you repeatedly fuck up and sin and don't learn your lessons well, is that I, you end I, up dead i liked harvey Keitel, but the scene with quentin tarantino just goes on so fucking long it's so long he like forgot to direct he was like in the movie and then he just <laughs> forgot to direct because it's just this like static shot basically of him that like the rest of the you know the directing is great in this movie you know it's very yes. kinetic and then it's just like student film like all of a sudden it's just like a shot on him Kevin and it's Smith not even movie. lit well <laughs> yeah. 
This is the other part I don't like. <laughs> this is like... Okay. Okay. Besides that one scene in the kitchen with Quentin Tarantino, I think he's fine in the movie. In every other scene, he's kind of like dorky. I don't know how he knows um, Samuel Jackson's character. They said they were partners. I don't really buy that. He's fine in the rest of the scenes where he's just like, they look like a couple of dorks. Or he's just like, oh, I like mahogany. You know, like, he's just like, fine. It's that one scene where he's saying the n-word quite a lot a lot a lot and i'm just like this is really cringy and his acting is cringy and i'm like it seems like he wrote the part for a black guy because bonnie is black jules and him used to be partners and he's saying the n-word quite a lot and when jules says it it doesn't bother me but like when quentin tarantino says it and he's got, got the hard r at the end and he says it so much and it's just it do, that does not hold up. Well, I feel like he wrote it thinking he was going to play that part, and he want he just wants to get away with it. Like, there's something, especially in these early films of his, that's, like, a little bit bratty, that it's just, like, a rebel- like when you tell your kid, like, you can't say that word, and they say it again, you know? Just like, oh, you told me I can't say this word, so I'm going to, and I'm going to say it 200 times in this movie, and it's just... It feels really obsessive to me, honestly, like, especially as you get later into his, his filmography and he's still basing entire movies basically around that word. And I think Brad is a really good way to put it. And I, and I, to me, that feels of a piece with the gimp scene and those kind of choices feel very, look at the mess I made. Haha, I dare you to, you know, take offense to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I absolutely think it's, I mean, it's not a trend, it's not a thing that Quentin Tarantino stopped doing after the 90s, but it certainly feels extremely dated now. Well, and I feel like a movie like Django Unchained basically exists because people took offense to this, and he was like, well, I'm gonna, like, you know, find a way to put it in context and, like, make a movie that's supposedly about this and the root of this word in America, but, like, it's still just, like, doubling down on this, like, and it's like, or you could just stop it, (laughs) you know, when people (laughs) tell you, you know, like, in certain contexts, yeah, it makes sense, you know, and you can have characters say this in certain contexts sometimes, and that's fine, but, like, does it need to be in every movie as many times? Like, it just, it kind of seems like at a certain point, point you did it like you, you you made your point and you don't have anything else to say about it so let's just drop it now yeah i uh, hopefully i don't think it's in kill bill the kill bill movies like i don't know like not that i know of i don't think it's in like once upon a time in hollywood yeah it's in reservoir dogs a few times like again it doesn't bother me when jules says it it's in his character you know or marcellus or whatever like it just feels like in character it doesn't bother me when a racist person says it like the two racist rapists you know because it's like okay they're bad but like when it's just kind of thrown around willy-nilly it's just like why why did you do that I don't like that part of Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you guys think of the last part of the Bonnie situation in the diner? I like it. I mean, it all comes full circle in a way, so that's interesting. Samuel L. Jackson is obviously really magnetic in that scene and, and not phoning it in, <laughs> um, <laughs> to put it mildly. I do sort of wish that the theme of redemption, and it it's basically comes down to, like, Vincent thinks things are random chance, and Samuel L. Jackson thinks things are more, like, spiritual, like, that they, were mir- that they experienced a miracle by not being shot. And I wish... That that miracle had come in the first part of the movie when we we first were in that. I'm not kind of did. Well, yes, but I mean, I wish we had been shown it in the Mm -hmm. first part of the movie because I think that theme could have carried 
like made some of the rest of the movie not feel so random. I agree with that. And I basically, even though like Bruce Willis's character is obviously connected in some thematic ways and obviously in plot ways, like he's connected through Marcellus, but I really don't feel like that sequence adds anything like that this movie couldn't have just had being kind of out of order in a different way with just Vincent and Jules and Mia and Marcellus. And even the sequence like going to Quentin Tarantino's house is this long drawn out thing that I think is just supposed to be mostly funny. And I just, I think it just adds this extra hour to this movie overall that we just really don't need. So, I mean, I like it. I like this like final sequence, but I I don't necessarily like it as a wrap up to this entire movie because I, I feel like there's a lot that we've had to sit through that doesn't really pay off in this in the ending. I like how the movie ends and I love how it's structured and I feel like seeing it for the first time, you're left with like, what did I just see? There's so much to take in and trying to figure out what order it really is in and what everything meant really suggests like watch it more. It's really great on second third viewings because things you didn't catch or things you forgot about pop up and you're like wait he died here but then he's there and i love that he took this chance with this narrative where like the end of john travolta's life is in the second sequence yet he's still in the movie like it's just it's unexpected because you think once you're dead you're dead you're not going to be seen again but he is and that ending isn't satisfying so we put it in the middle instead of the end where you're supposed to feel like satisfied whereas i feel like the ending with honey bunny and pumpkin and how that kind of wraps up is is a satisfying ending and i just find it so interesting that he decided to do it that way where he's like well this isn't as satisfying but this is how chronologically it ends so i'll just put it in the middle and i think a lot of people after this movie tried to do that and it just was forced whereas I feel like he actually it actually works for this movie yeah I do like the way that like knowing that Vincent dies like sort of undercuts the ending of this movie which otherwise would feel kind of like happy-ish you know sort of upbeat at least but it does kind of highlight this the sense that like you never really know what's coming you never know like if today's your last day or Mm -hmm. something like that and and so I do think that that the out of order quality of it does highlight that sense of i think random chance versus fate that it kind of runs throughout the movie there's just so much unexpectedness in this movie like the unexpected magical realism of the briefcase i love it i love you never find out i love that it's just like this mystery that's like seemingly there for no reason it's just something like that's just so beautiful that like anyone who sees it is like captivated like it doesn't matter what it is i just i just feel like there's so much in this movie like that where you're like whoa what's that or like you're shocked or you're just like like you just it does so much that other movies wouldn't dare to even think of doing yeah i mean it's a touch too cute i think in a way maybe felt kind of fresh at the time now it feels a little too writerly i just wish i could buy this story more and and that's just one more thing where it's like oh there's a magical golden thing in in the suitcase like if it was money or drugs like like it just it would feel more grounded and i that's not really what he's doing is he's obviously like kind of making a comment on the trope that like basically every movie has something in a suitcase or some especially like every like crime film like has something that characters are going after and it doesn't really matter what it is as long as you buy that they want it but it wasn't super convincing the way it was done like even if even if it was just like a closed suitcase and we never saw in in it and then like i would like that better than like sort of opening it and having it be this like golden thing which feels kind of cheesy yeah that part felt a little bit cheesy well clearly i feel one way about this movie and clearly (laughs) my co-host feel another
So less than a year after Pulp Fiction's release, um, a British critic named John Ronson attended the National Film School's end of semester screenings, and he noted this. Out of the five student movies I watched, four incorporated violent shootouts over a soundtrack of iconoclastic 70s pop hits, two climaxed with all the main characters shooting each other at once, and one had two hitmen discussing the idiosyncrasies of the Brady Bunch before offing their victim. Not since Citizen Kane has one man appeared from relative obscurity to redefine the art of movie making. I think he was onto something there. I remember when I was 17, so quite a few years after Pulp Fiction, I went to Northwestern's uh, like film camp for like high schoolers, and there were so many <laughs> like Pulp Fiction-y screenplays. Like we would write scripts and pre- present them, and there was just so many that were just like pulled from either Tarantino or Kevin Smith, or both, <laughs> or both, a combination of both. And there were so many movies that came out after Pulp Fiction that felt like they were directly influenced by the success of this movie. Off the top of my head was Go, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking barrels gross point blank two days in the valley get shorty boondock saints things to do in denver when you're dead very bad things the usual suspects like there's probably way more than that so he definitely influenced a lot of cinema for better or worse i think you could also put like maybe run lola run and amoros peros in there as far as like changing with like narrative structure um, I'm playing with that. You know, so for better or worse, like, he really did change movie making in the 90s. Yeah, I think his legacy is really complicated because I think most of what he begat is not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not necessarily his fault because he can't choose who imitates him. Obviously, he wanted to be as successful as possible, and he was very successful with this film and, and later films. I do think he evolved as a storyteller in a way, because, like, if you cut this off here and I look at True Romance, Reservoir Dogs, and Pulp Fiction, I'm like, like, his attitudes toward women, his attitudes toward race, like, there's a lot of problematic stuff in the, in those movies. I do think he, at least, I don't know if he hears it as criticism, but he does, I think, respond to what people are saying to an extent with, like, he made, he had much better female characters going forward with The Bride and Kill Bill, um, Jackie Brown. Absolutely. Death Proof, you know, so, like, it's easy to, like, single certain things out. And he got a lot of flack for, like, having Patricia Arquette, like, being, like, brutally beaten in True Romance, which he wrote and didn't direct. So, you know, who knows? He might have directed it differently like ultimately tony scott made that decision so yeah and and then the race stuff you know we've already talked about but it does get a little bit just the amount of like focus he puts on it in django unchained and and the hateful eight it gets a little exhausting you know and i really like have gone on a roller coaster ride with tarantino because i do like reservoir dogs and always have you heard what i think about pulp fiction which is a mixed bag for me and then like by the time we got to like the hateful eight i was just like oh like i was just so over him because he supposedly did this like contained thing like kind of like going back to Reservoir Dogs with like supposed to be like eight people in a room but then he kept like he would added more characters and like flashback to it like the day before and then it's like a three hour movie and it's just like no you were trying to do a contained thing (laughs) and he just like he isn't able to like contain himself sometimes which you know a lot of people love his excesses but they can be a lot and and I think they can be kind of limiting Yeah, which is why I actually like when he was literally limited with like Reservoir Dogs because he had to be creative and obviously all his movies are creative. Like I I do admire how much like every one of his movies 
is a, its own distinct world. They're very, very like visually imaginative. There's so many ideas in them. There's so many references in them. And I love both in his films and outside of his films what he does to like preserve film culture. Like he has his own theater here in LA, the New Beverly, where you can go and watch. I think they're all projected on film, 35 millimeter. Like you can, he really cares about the experience of watching movies. And there's something really interesting in his films, you know, Pulp Fiction included, but all of them, that they're all referencing past movies, but they're very different movies than the ones you would see in film school. Like in film school, we watched things like Casablanca or, you know, maybe things that are slightly less obvious, but like very classical things. Yeah. Yeah, And you do not really see Grindhouse movies Mm -hmm. or slasher movies, Kung Fu, black exploitation, like maybe in specific classes you might see some of those. But in general, that's not a part of film education. But he does kind of revere these films in a way. There's something about him that's meant for the video generation rather than as much as he's like into cinema. Like it feels like his films are as much about video as they are about cinema. I I do like the way that he keeps these things alive in in like a lot of people would never have seen a black exploitation film and haven't, but are aware of at least kind of their legacy and of Pam Greer because of Jackie Brown or something like that. So as much as I sort of have issues with certain things and wish that he looked more sometimes at the content of the movies he's pastiching, you know, and like learned from like the themes of them and the, the kind of more the storytelling more than just like reproducing the visuals. I do think he has an important place in pop culture. Like it's hard to imagine film today without him because there's this exuberance to his filmmaking and this originality that you, there's definitely as much as he takes from so much, like there's also a lot of himself and like you look at a Tarantino movie and you watch it and you know who made it. Like there's no questioning that and the imitators never quite get there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you put it perfectly. Like, his his reverence for cinema and what he's done to fight for film culture is, like, by itself very laudable. But I do think there's also something unique, almost, <laughs> almost exclusive to him, having such a depth and breadth of film knowledge and being able to pastiche and collage all of these different influences and images and icons all together, but still have that come out to feel like something fresh and new. Both of those aspects, I think, are things that are mostly lost on all of his imitators. And yeah, it's so it is kind of funny because you can't really hold that against him. But that, I think, a lot of his influence on the rest of the film industry has not necessarily been for the best. And it would interest me still to see him direct someone else's script. And I don't know if his ego is one that would ever conceivably allow it. I think in in some ways, I agree with you, Chris, that his writing in, in some small ways has matured, but also in other ways, it's really not. And it's really been kind of cast in amber now as kind of the only Quentin Tarantino approach. And it is a singular vision, so I I can't dismiss it on those grounds. But, you know, I always appreciate seeing the filmmakers who do let themselves branch out and do let themselves become something entirely wholly different. You know, and I don't think any one filmmaker can be interchangeable with any other, but it's been interesting to me as someone who's a huge cinema obsessive, and especially someone who's always loved writer-directors, to see the way that, like, Paul Thomas Anderson, for instance, has evolved and grown, and even 
you know, like with his latest movie, Licorice Pizza, he's returns to a setting and a milieu that's familiar to his other movies, but it feels very, very, very different. Um, not just in the sense of being a different story, but just in terms of atmosphere and the emotions it, it pulls on and the tropes that are involved in the storytelling. You feel like he's challenging himself, I feel like. And like always, yeah. always. feel like he's challenging himself, and I, I want to come out of a Tarantino movie feeling like I've seen someone who's challenged himself, and I haven't that's not been my experience, especially like his last couple of movies, like, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I found that movie very entertaining, but never once felt like it was the work of someone who was challenging himself or trying to break any new ground. That is my favorite of his movies. And I just, the one thing that I think is really interesting about that film relative to his filmography is that like, he's so known for violence that like, I find it really interesting that he took this legacy of Sharon Tate, who is essentially only known for the horrific way that she died and basically unkilled her and instead like let her live and still had a lot of violence perpetrated on other people in the end but that seems like a very like lovely sort of gift and and he's you know brutalized women in in his movies to varying degrees of i think sometimes you know in a way that works really well and sometimes it doesn't but to like take this real life person who was so horrifically brutalized and like let her sort of live and kind of celebrate her i thought was a very interesting choice despite it being very tarantino in the way that he then turned that against the manson family instead tarantino will always be like very special to me. I will always see his movies. He's been a mixed bag for me since Pulp Fiction. I remember seeing Jackie Brown in theaters and expecting something I loved and I did get something very different and did not like it. Um, I have seen it since and my opinion has changed. I'm much more favorable to it now. I think that may be my favorite Tarantino Um, movie. But like, and and I did like the Kill Bill movies. It seems like everything he's released since Pulp Fiction, I have not loved Mm. or I've loved moments of and I've had major problems with. I do love Inglorious Bastards, but I have notes. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I, I do love watching that movie. That's probably after Reservoir Dogs, like my third favorite where I've seen it many, many times, but I, I do think it's flawed. There are moments I liked of the Hollywood one, and I mostly liked Hateful Eight, but it's just like, I feel like he does get in his own way a lot. I want somebody to go in there and and be like, take this out, take this out, switch this around. <laughs> like, you know, like, don't get rid of what makes you you. And I and in what you said, Seth, like, I don't want him to direct another person's script. Like, I'm happy with him bringing whatever his vision is into the world. I just think somebody needs to, like reining in a little bit like he needs like not so much like a film editor but somebody to edit the script with him to like be like this needs to like move or i just feel like i i want to walk away from a movie like pulp fiction again and just be like i fucking loved every second of that like great (laughs) and i haven't really felt that with with any of his movies since. I also think we should pay a little tribute here to the woman who was yes. his film editor, mm-hmm. Sally Mankey, because she tragically died of like heat stroke on a record historical I hot day in day. Los Angeles. It was so hot. I do think her film editing had a lot to do with the best of his movies. And I think the loss of her as a collaborator set him back in a way. 
Yeah, he, I mean, very much acknowledged that even when, she, you know, she was still alive, that, she, that he, I think he called her his co-writer, which not mm-hmm. literally in the screenplay sense, but that she's helping him rewrite movies in the editing process. So, yeah, she was super important to these films and, and to him. I wonder kind of, like, in 100 years or even 50 years, like, there's a part of me that's like, is he going to just look like D.W. Griffith, you know, where it's just like, we, like, look at these movies and we're like, whoa, I can't believe, like, I don't that was allowed i don't i don't think so i think there's a sense that that could happen just because they're so mired in race and i think it's very optimistic to think that they'll be a 50 years from now (laughs) well (laughs) (laughs) jesus christ what a way to end on (laughs) it also goes to the question of like representation is it inherently a wrong thing to depict awful people and the awful things that they believe and say on one hand it could be a mark of progress if we get to a point as a human race where we're like why would anyone have put this as what they wanted their voice to express to the world but on the other hand i think it's crucial to use our stories to put light on darkness and on the blight of humanity as well yeah i kind of wonder what's gonna come next from him just because most of his last movies have in this weird way like been hinged around justifying extreme violence that's like i do all this extreme violence to people but what if they were nazis and then what if they were slave owners what if it was the manson family it's like he's just like justifying it now because like we can't really feel bad for the manson family and we don't they deserve that (laughs) but yeah. It's like, or you could just not brutalize people. Like, is that a possibility in one of your movies? And he kind of almost got there with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then, of course, at the end, couldn't help but, like, end it in an ultra-violent way. And I, I really, I think that's a fantastic question. And it really, it also goes to me to, like, the way his last few movies have, like, the way those movies actually end has, in a way, almost felt like a kind of swan song, like, goodbye so, like, he's said for going on a decade now that he's done making movies or something like that. He says he said as far as last June that his next movie will be his last. But wasn't it supposed to be eight originally? I don't know. Now it's ten. Look, I don't know. Do I think he's really going to retire? I don't think so. I think in 50 years, I think he'll be remembered fondly. I really do. I think these movies are so distinct and just so him that just so the, the vision of one person that I feel like they really will be remembered fondly despite the N-word, despite problematic parts of them. I think that mostly, you know, his movies will be studied and and watched for quite a while in a, in a in a good in like a, in a positive light. Yeah, I think so too. Guys, much like a Tarantino movie, this went on very long. <laughs> And I think we need to say uh And goodbye. we're going to cut in the intro from the first episode now. <laughs> well, this is the middle of the episode, yeah, this right? Is, this is and that's all the milkshakes and cocaine we've got time for in this episode of When We Were Young. And hamburgers. <laughs> and that's a tasty burger. <laughs> On our next episode. Na, 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 na. We're doing snick. <laughs> that's right, everyone. We're going to hop on the big orange couch and talk about everyone's favorite Saturday night entertainment experience. Saturday Night Nick, otherwise known as Snick. Uh, this was in the 90s? right 90s um where uh shows such as clarissa explains it all uh roundhouse all that keenan and kel uh, are you afraid of the dark are you afraid of the dark alex mack uh ruled the airwaves at least if you were a tween (laughs) (laughs) that had cable (laughs) so we'll be doing that next on the podcast 
When We Were Young is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcast product, and contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash young so we can bring you more episodes all for free. I've been Seth Pearson. I'm Chris. And I'm gonna get medieval on your ass! It's not as good as my Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, you gotta work on your Ving Rains, Becky. <laughs> no, I'm good. No. <laughs> Oh, my God.